gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, speaking of the Dispatch and Dispatch Media, this is um, our annual installment of our. Um, I don't know. We don't. We, we, we don't. We never really figured out what to call these things, and usually we're um, drinking when we do them. Um, but um, this is the third of what's going on with the Dispatch episodes of the Remnant, um, and I've. I pulled every string I had to get uh, none other than Steve Hayes, CEO of the Dispatch, on the line. And I got to tell you, he made it difficult. But um, Steve, welcome to the Remnant. <laughs> People are clicking off as we speak. Uh, thank you. It's good to be. It's good to be back. It's been a while. Uh, it has been a while. Um, um, I mean, your record's pretty good about Dispatch. I mean, about Remnant appearances. It it can't hold a candle to like Starwald or Garrity or anything. Garrity, but, Starwald, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, they have better um, things to say than I do and are more important. I'll just leave that to the, the <laughs> listeners. Um, and we're not going to do, I mean, we should do some rank punditry at some point, but we'll try to figure out how to like insert it organically into this whole thing. Um, but as you were saying, you know, one of the, one of the, problems uh like so when we were out raising money for this thing three and a half years ago or whatever that was everybody kept telling us you know there's gonna be a lot of work and we're like yeah we you know we work hard we, we we're not afraid of hard work we know you know but it's worth it and yada yada and then like from the moment we started this thing we're like holy crap this is a lot of work <laughs> true fact that is true. and um and it falls i will say uh, disproportionately on your shoulders because um, you're the CEO. So you are in the, you, you, I, I try to explain my role to people is I'm sort of like the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff. Um, I'm not technically in the chain of command for the U S military. <laughs> right. But um, <laughs> my advice carries a good deal of weight. <laughs> and That's good, uh, actually. <laughs> um, so, uh, and so one of the problems with this is that you were, you know, the, the, the original joke, and it was a joke, sort of, but the one of the original jokes we used to say when we raised money was that you were going to write a weekly reported column, sort of, and I'd always say sort of like uh, Robert Novak's, but without the anti-Semitism. And um, <laughs> we can't, you know, we can't even get one with the anti-Semitism from you. Um, you're still working on a piece about the Trump, and, Trump administration's negotiations with the Taliban, um, which is an in-house joke, you know, whenever we talk about how you want to write something. We're always like, yeah, but you got to finish the Taliban piece first. Um, how do you find uh, not being able to be a, a full-time <laughs> full-time writer like you promised me you would be? I mean, I think I think most other people probably enjoy it a lot. They don't have to slog through my my stuff. I find it when I do on the rare occasion that I do have to write, I find it much much more difficult mm -hmm. than I used to. I mean, there is a thing. I mean, you've got this this down writing in your car, writing with a cigar. It, it, I, I pause, I hesitate over my words all the time, even in stupid stuff like, you know, emails to the whole staff or things like that. Um, so it'll take some time. Well, I, you know, I, I think this is in some ways, this is, this is what we expected. It's just on a much delayed time frame, right? I mean, 
we knew it was going to take a while to, to build the stuff out. I basically committed to not really doing much writing or reporting, real reporting for, for a year. Um, but I think the circumstances that ca- caused the delay are circumstances that we would have been ecstatic about beforehand. I mean, I think it all just grew much faster than we had anticipated. Right. You know, I mean, I think we've said maybe in last year's talk, our, our projection for paying members at the end of year two, the end of, uh, I guess it would have been 2020 was like 4,200 people. And, you know, we had to like five times that or something. So the, the reasons that we, uh, that, 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 uh, that's been delayed are very good reasons. Happy to do it. I'd love to get to the point where I, I get back into reporting. I miss it a lot. I'm doing reporting. Uh, I do reporting for participating in the dispatch podcast and dispatch lives. I sort of at the point where I can't, I don't want to talk about things that I don't know about. We've, we, you know, we launched this thing with a promise that we weren't going to do kind of hot takes without having some idea what we're talking about. You know, you know this because I sometimes opt out of dispatch podcasts, probably to the frustration of others when I say, like, I haven't made any phone calls on this. Like, I don't really know what I'm talking about. So I don't want to go on and pretend I know what I'm talking about when I don't know what I'm talking about after we've told people that we won't go on and talk about things when we don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I always try to tell people that, like, for a guy who doesn't do a lot of reporting, you should talk to a lot of politicians anyway, and or at least text with them. I check in. I check in a lot. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's good to, to keep those conversations going. When I say reporting, like, I mean, usually to a, that's all part of the reporting process, to be sure, and news gathering generally. But um, I mean, you know, for a specific if you say we're going to talk about the Wisconsin Senate race on the Dispatch podcast on Thursday, well, I'll spend a couple hours making phone calls and talking to people, people who know what's going on and can shed some light on this. I, I, have, I don't do that as frequently as I used to do it. But we're going to get you back to it at some point. Right? Def- I mean, definitely. Um, and so part of the plan about how to do that was um, hiring an executive editor, which we've done. and hiring a bunch of other editors, which we've done. What is the, I mean, I, 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 I can probably get it within a margin of error of like one or two people, but what is our total staff, including like regular contributors now? Yeah, I probably should know this exactly. Um, well, if you're including regular contributors, we're north of 30. Um, so if, if we're talking about staff and regular contributors, we're, we're north of And we don't mean freelancers. 30. We mean like, you know, Scott Lincecum right. and Clon- you know, those Kitchen. guys. Yep, right. yep. Yeah, we're north of 30 and we have uh, at, at the moment, I think, five positions open. So so we're growing. I mean, it is an interesting. I mean, I won't I will try my best not to to hijack your own podcast and start asking you questions. But <clears throat> you're, you're allowed on this one. I, I guess I can. So when we did those investor pitches three and a half years ago, one of the things we told everybody meant to contrast ourselves with other digital native companies that have grown, had grown too fast and sort of couldn't keep up with their own growth. Everybody we pitched, we said, we are going to grow slowly. We are going to grow methodically. We are, you know, not going to try to generate a ton of revenue right away. We want this to be a deliberate process. We don't want to create the incentives to produce revenue that would at the same time create bad incentives editorially. Um, but we've grown fast, like a lot faster than we thought of. If you, if I would have asked you then how many people we'd have at this point, you wouldn't have said in the thirties, would you? No, no, I wouldn't have. And, 
and so I mean, this this is a good segue to, um, and look, I'm 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 well aware, dear remnant listeners, that we've lost some of you already. That's fine. I do this once a year. It's important because there are people. We have a lot of listeners who are actually pretty invested in this thing, and and want to know what's going on. But if you don't, that's great. Um, and jokes know. aside, I mean, we can we can see the numbers and. A lot of people have listened to the previous two installments of this. So yeah, yeah. And uh, although I think there are a sizable number of people who hate listening to them, um, but uh, that's fine. <laughs> um, so we have left Substack, and uh, I'll be clear up front so you don't have to do your whole spiel. We like the guys at Substack. We wish them well, all that kind of thing. Um, but one of the things that's kind of hard to explain to people is that one of the reasons why we left Substack is, is that we needed to, to grow further. Um, Substack is a fantastic platform, I would argue, for individual writers. Like if, if I was going to cash out of the dispatch and just go do my own, do the G file as a one-man band kind of thing, um, I, I don't see why I wouldn't immediately go to Substack. And... Um, but for what we're trying to do, it's there's a real conflict in terms of the analytics that we want to be a f- fully realized company, media platform, uh, the the functionality that we need on the back end and on and and also for users or our members. Um, it's just not what we wanted it to be, and we wanted to be our own brand. And it was starting to get to the point where we were sort of like the most important sub brand within this. Substack universe. And so, you know, we've been pretty frugal with our money, <laughs> you know, the 30 employees notwithstanding um, for the last, you know, three years. But one of the reasons was, was that we couldn't spend the money that we raised in a smart, deliberate way, given the, the limitations of Substack for an outfit like ours. Right. I mean, that's about right. Yeah, very much, very much. I mean, yeah, I, I won't repeat everything you said, but they've been great. That was, I think that was one of the very best decisions that we made was when they yeah. came to us and said, will you guys be our guinea pigs? And and we said yes, and it's been a great partnership. Um, you know, in the conversations that we had with them, I think you sort of asked the, the direct question, and they, I think Substack became a thing for them that they hadn't anticipated, right? I mean, it became mm-hmm. a, a, a home, you know, not unlike, Facebook or other places that people could live and and work and operate rather than just the architecture that sat behind individual content creators. And they've done a lot to take advantage of that. And I think in some cases in really smart, smart ways, I mean, they've got this recommendation um, program now that allows people to recommend other Substack writers. And that's generating a ton of new subscriptions for people who are on Substack. I mean, they've done things like that. They've innovated, I think, quite quite uh, wisely, but we, that's what we were doing. So it, it got to the point where it was a little redundant and we're, we're off. We've, we migrated um, a week ago. Uh, it, I would say we just had a call going over the, the details of the migration. Justin Fritz, our COO, led it. Uh, we think he did a fantastic job. It's sort of, you know, 24 seven, anybody who's been through a website migration, we will not bore you with all of the the stories, but it's a hard, hard thing to do. Joan mm-hmm. and I have both been through a few. Um, and 
uh, we, we, you know, certainly there are things that we would have done differently. There are tweaks that we still want to make. There are improvements that we had planned to make that just aren't o- o- available to, or, or, um, we're not in a position to make right now, but uh, this was a really good first step and, uh, we're, we're excited about it, excited to be on our, our own and excited to, to have Jonah put on his CTO hat to help, uh, <laughs> to help us figure this out. Yeah, no, I mean, like as the founding editor of NRO, um, I had so much PTSD um, from site redesigns and and all these kinds of things that we had done, and they always. And the trick is, it's it's sort of like um, having a really good restaurant and trying to swap out all the stoves <laughs> and and ovens and equipment in the kitchen without the diners noticing anything. And, (laughs) and, um, you know, while you're still doing food service and, um, we didn't fully succeed. You know, we had, we had a bunch of lifetime members that were thrown off and I think we fixed it pretty quickly. Um, but you never want to, you never want to do that. Right. And, but most of the, the trouble has been on the, on, on, on the kitchen side of things so that the, we think for the most part, individual experiences may vary. Most of the problems weren't noticed by the public. We got to, we got to fix some of the, the comment stuff is still not where we want it to be. Um, and there are a few other things like that in terms of like weird formatting going out and all that kind of thing. But when you think about how unbelievably badly could have gone. Um, yeah. We're pretty pleased. Yeah, and some of the stuff. I mean, look, well, I'll just we'll just level set. What we what we wanted to do with this was make a move off of of Substack, sort of establish ourselves uh, on this new tech stack, and then make improvements from there. So this was the first step in doing that. We have some big plans for for community and comments. We want people to spend time. With us, that's been the case, I think, on uh, in our first three years on Substack. And Substack, for all of its, for all the things we just praised them for, I would say one of the things they didn't do as well was commenting in community. Um, and it was one of the reasons that, that we're looking to improve. And that improvement is coming. It's just not coming tomorrow. It'll, it'll come. Right. We're committed to doing it. And we're excited about what, what, we, uh, what we have in mind. Yeah. And so for people who don't, I mean, just one last point on the Substack thing, because I get asked about it a lot. And it is always weird how, like, and and this is not Substack's fault, right? And this is, um, and it's, but it was always very frustrating. I mean, how many times have we, did I tell those guys, um, or did I say to you how frustrating it was to have all of these pieces, you know, these media columnists, media reporters talking about these incredible things that Substack is doing, and you know how they're transforming the media environment, and yada yada yada. And then not mention us when we were their number one revenue generator for years or uh, mention us in like the 38th paragraph. And, um, and that was before Substack launched their app, which sort of coincided, you know, right before they launched it, we had these meetings and this meeting, this question that you were referring to was I, you know, I'd asked them, you know, in effect, you know, are you, an outward facing brand like a Facebook or Twitter, or are you like Oracle 
where like no one knows that they're using Oracle's thingamabobs when they're on the internet. But Oracle's like this huge part of the internet, but they're infrastructure. And they're kind of invisible to the end user. And they were very honest. And they said, more like Facebook. And, and then when the app came out, you open it up and it was a beautiful app. I wish we had an app like that. And we're going to get an app at, you know, down the road. But when you open it up, it made the dispatch look like it was sort of a section in Substack magazine, like, you know, like some special right. sort of special feature in the table of contents in Harper's, you know, from the people at the dispatch. And that's not why we busted our ass to like create this thing is to be like a real valuable property within the media world, you know, within the media property of, of, of Substack. And and so we appreciate the patience of a lot of our, our members for, for us doing this, particularly among the members who don't understand why we did it in the first place. And it's, it's largely so we can actually be the, the best version of ourselves going forward. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, when, when, we, when we, again, this, this, this investor deck that we did, actually, the truth be told, neither Jonah nor I knew how to put together a PowerPoint. So we, in fact, did not put together the investor That's deck. Right. We had... We had a, a friend do it for us, but it included basically three pillars and it was newsletters, podcasts, and community and community was the common stuff. And it's the place I think that we've been, uh, we've fallen most far behind as we've, as we've tried to build this out. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, what we've been able to do on, on Substack has been, um, you know, has been just incredibly encouraging. We're talking about a time where if you follow the media industry, and I understand probably there's some people who don't uh, as closely as I do. You've seen this dramatic drop off in news engagement um, over the past year, really over the past two years since the, the 2020 election. And there are various ways to measure news engagement. Um, most people use the kind of old school volume scale uh, means of, of making those assessments, traffic or unique visitors or things like that. And we don't pay as much attention to those metrics. but even as you've seen this dramatic drop off in overall news engagement, we've continued to grow. Um, and that's been encouraging both in terms of subscribers and in terms of the, the people who are seeing our stuff on the website, um, sort of in every different way we've continued to grow. And obviously that's, you know, really encouraging for us because of this was, this was the bet that we made. This was the kind of the risk that we took. But I do think, and I don't, I won't get too Jonah Rolls's eyes if I get too <laughs> excited or sometimes even emotional about it. I do think it's also just good for the country that that there are people who want the kind of contextual information that that we're providing, the kind of you know reporting that's more serious and less focused on the gossipy stuff. Not that we don't have have our fun or or or. Uh, have people who engage <clears throat> kind of at the, on that stuff. I, I don't know. It's, it's encouraging to me that, that people, that people want that. That was one of the big questions. Is there an audience for what you guys are building? And, and as you've pointed out a number of times before, Jonah, a lot of people said, no, there is no yeah. audience for that stuff. You know, whether it was sort of philosophically people who came, you know, advocate, we say informed by conservative principles and by conservative principles, we meet sort of old school conservatism um, or whether we're talking about the kinds of content that we, we provide. And um, I don't know how big it is, but it's certainly been an encouraging first few years. 
Yeah, I mean, without getting too deep in the weeds on that, I, I do think it's interesting and worth pointing out, like, and this is a good segue into a different question, but a lot of the people who were convinced what we were doing would fail or believe that it's failed, which is, you know, that if you, if you read my Twitter mentions, you'll find a lot of people who seem to think that, like, I don't know, Seb Gorka has his finger on the pulse of what's going on in the media. Um, part of the reason why so many people were convinced we would fail, I don't want to knock on wood on all this because we still have a lot of right. a flight path ahead of us, but um, was that they were the people who, you know, this is a, you know, David and I love to quote this French intellectual who said, you know, there go the people, I must go with them for I am their leader. Um, there were just an enormous number of people who made a bet about sort of what was happening on the right, what was happening with Trump and what was happening at Fox and all that. And, um, and said, I got to get on board this new thing and this new way of thinking about things, this new populism, new nationalism, the, the Trump train, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they thought because it was working for them that therefore there was no reason to sort of stick to your guns about, you know, not giving into it. And, you know, when you see talk radio, when you see cable news um, and a lot of websites that are pretty obvious who I'm talking about um, cave into that kind of thing, you're in your own kind of bubble and just assume that everybody who doesn't go along is, is a fool for not doing it. And, part of the reason why we launched this thing was to prove you didn't have to behave that way and you didn't have to sign up for all that stuff and defend things that you wouldn't have defended two years ago um, or five years ago or whatever. And um, that's the part I find heartening is that, you know, yeah. we, you know, I mean, again, the podcast is called a remnant for a reason, but like the actual remnant such as it is in, in market terms is really friggin' large. And yeah. if we could get, you know, we, uh, Justin, our COO, you know, ran these numbers at our retreat, you know, about the best market research about how many people are willing to pay for news, how many people are willing to pay for right of center news, how many people um, are interested in the kind of, for want of a better word, product that we're providing. It's a very large number. I wish it were larger because I think that would be a sign of health for the American people. But even if you take the smallest number as possible, we're talking about low double digits, millions of people. And um, if we could get one, two, five, 10% of that, we would be a wildly successful media company. And, and we're not there yet, but that light at the end of the tunnel gets brighter, you know, not necessarily every day, but almost every week. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, and yeah, I think there are things that we are potentially in a position to do now to, to reach out to, to more people, to get our stuff in front of more people. Um, you know, we're not believers in search engine optimization and, um, you know, virality for the sake of virality or virality for the sake of monetizing clicks. It's not the business that we're in. But that's not to say that we don't want more people reading our stuff, uh, you know, on the textual side. And uh, we think that this move puts us in a much better position to, to get our, our stuff in front of even more people uh, than had been reading it before and to reach more people. I mean, the way that we think about it, again, I'm not going to go deep in the, in the, the sort of business philosophy of the thing, but if, if 
lots of publications in the past used newsletters as a freeway into their paid product, which was the website of the subscription stuff. We've sort of inverted that. So most of the stuff on our website is free and the the product in, in many cases, as we think of it on the textual side is the newsletters. Um, and that we think that's an interesting way to do it. Seems to have worked for us so far. But the key to that working is that a lot of people are seeing your free stuff. So they read it and they say, boy, I'd like more of that. That seems thoughtful or interesting or very helpful explanatory journalism. How do I get more? And then they come and they can, they can get more from, from our folks. I think we've put ourselves in a position to reach more people that way with this, with this move. And so uh, good things ahead. Can I ask a second question? Um, sure. Again, at the risk of hijacking. We've been we've spent a few minutes here patting ourselves on the back and talking about how awesome we are. What would you say is the biggest mistake or failure or thing you'd do differently? And I gave him no warning that I was going to ask this Jeez. question. So if, if you could see his face right now on video, uh, <laughs> you look deeply disturbed. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get you for this. I know um, you're going to say you're going to say working with me. That's that's the obvious answer. Um, well, I mean, like, um, I don't think I'm going to do some throat clearing as I try to figure out what my real answer is, but I think that, um, we did those lifetime memberships sort of as a lark, sort of as just sort of a market testing lark where, you know, we thought we would get two or three dozen of them, you know, yeah. something like that. And which would have been great, you know, I mean, 1500 bucks where we told people explicitly, you're not getting anything special for a while. Yeah. Um, but this is just a sort of statement of your commitment to us um, and what we're trying to do. And I don't know how many, we've got 300, 400 of them within a couple of weeks. And um, was it that many? I can't, it was yeah, hundreds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And now we're and at about so, 600. Yeah, so we hit, you know, our subscriber revenue, projected subscriber revenue for the first year like within weeks after launch. And from a strictly economic point of view, some would argue that's proof that we set the price too low. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, there are worse problems than getting 600 people to spend 1500 bucks um, purely as a sign of support for what we're doing. Um, I don't know. I mean, there, I, you know, there were some, there were some personnel challenges that we don't need to get into. Um, I don't know if they qualify as our biggest mistake and they're certainly not appropriate to talk about here. Um, I do think like, as you, as you may recall, because I bring it up often, um, in our first meeting with the Substack guys, yeah, I raised the, this thing about having an app. I do recall. <laughs> and they looked at me like I had suggested in the middle of church on a Sunday morning. Let's have the orgy right here. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're like an app, an app, everything that's wrong. And, and, um, and I didn't understand it then. And I, I really don't understand it now since now Substack has an app. And I think if we had to do it all over again, I think maybe looking at having, figuring out a way to have an app early yeah, on. There's a lot of, a lot of people look at stuff on their phone and an app would have all the, a good app, right? Cause there are bad ones would make it very easy to read in a way that like, if you didn't want to read it as email, whatever, 
I think that would have been good. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the other answer I was thinking about, which is fraught, is the question of you know advertising versus sponsorships. Yeah, um, and I'm not sure that we made any wrong decisions, but I think we could have been clearer in the beginning about our views on this because we have now educated a, a lot of our members to think that even though we never said this, that if we have anything that looks like a sponsorship of an email, that we violated some principle. And we never said that. You know, what we always said was, we'll never ever have, what do you call it, programmatic stuff, pop-up videos, annoying tech. You know, we want Ad the user- in the newsletters, yeah. yeah. We'll never have that. And we'll never have um, um, anything that screws up the reader experience in any significant way. Um, and we'll never have anything that is all about monetizing clicks. Um, but like, would it violate some core principle of mind if we had, you know, Klon Kitchens, the current, you know, brought to you by, you know, is sponsored by the American U.S. Chamber of Commerce or something like that? No, it wouldn't. And we've, you know, when you look at some of the other companies out there, that started out about our size, um, we've left an enormous amount of money on the table by sticking to this position about the ad stuff that I think we could have finessed better in retrospect. Um, But here we are. Yeah. What do you think of that? I think those those are interesting. Um, The the ad sponsorship thing was, uh, was a question for the beginning. Our original idea was that we would do, we always called them tasteful sponsorships in right. in newsletters but that they would they wouldn't involve building ad tech which you know effectively means like allowing people to click through and then providing the data that lots of advertisers had grown accustomed to um we always saw them as basically like you know the equivalent of billboards um in the newsletter people who wanted to be in that space and that was another thing i mean it is it is funny to go back cuz we were just hopelessly naive and clueless about how to do this. I mean, we, there's a lot yeah. we didn't know. Um, I had, you know, helped run the weekly standard for, for a couple of years, but did not, I was exposed to the things that happened on the business side, but didn't have any real say in, in, yeah. in what things happened. Wasn't really part of the decision-making process. So I had kind of had a, a did that frustrate you, Steve? No, no, it was great. <laughs> it's just fine. It's good. I had a basic familiarity of how things ran or maybe should have run, um, but didn't, you know, we didn't, this wasn't a decision-making process. So uh, among the things that we sort of stumbled into was this idea to do these billboards. And we talked to people who are way smarter than we are, who knew a lot about uh, monetizing these things. You said, yeah, people just won't go for it. You can never take that to a potential advertiser or sponsor and say, we're not going to do what everybody else is doing, but pay us, you know, Pay right. us to do this thing, and and that's become a thing now. I mean, it's more more people are doing that. There's been some interesting uh, articles and and analyses published about about that working. Now, that's that's an interesting one. I hadn't I hadn't um, thought about that as much. I mean, I I don't. So I what's don't, your answer? Yeah, I mean, I knew you were going to say that. Obviously, uh, I, I don't have it. I should know the answer to that question before I ask it. Um, I guess I don't ha- have an an obvious one. Um, you know, we, I would say we've emphasized 
newsletters and, and our textual work more than we've emphasized podcasting, um, both in terms of uh, how we've rolled them out and how we've conceived them and the new ones that we're doing and, and different steps, both on the business side and on the editorial side. Podcasting has felt sort of secondary. Um, that was by design. We wanted this, we wanted to focus on reader revenue from the beginning to create this sort of stable foundation to allow the company to grow and, and you know, raise revenue that we could use to, to hire new people and, and do new things. Um, I don't think I would necessarily call that a mistake. And I'm not even sure that I would suggest if we were starting over that we would do it differently. But, but I do think probably we would have been more, um, maybe would have been more intentional about it mm-hmm. and, and scouted things out uh, a little bit more. Uh, we, we have this kind of philosophy internally that, uh, that we'd rather sort of default, default in favor of action, like let's try it, let's do it. And we've done that in some cases. There's probably more experimentation that we could have done on the podcast side. Um, and that would have been, um, that would have been better. Probably could have, um, you know, we, we certainly have been, um, we, we were conflicted between this desire not to grow too fast and the need to grow faster. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's an argument that we could have been more deliberate and uh, uh, urgent in our hiring processes. I think when you talk about uh, a lot of the this being more work than, than we thought it was, that probably contributes um, in a couple of different ways. Um, but I don't have a I don't really have a, a good answer to that. I just thought it was important it, that we mentioned some of our failures and that we were idiots uh, a lot of the time in addition to yeah but there's a there's, talking about how nice it is that we're growing there's a subtle very subtle um almost strausian and it's a significant silence <laughs> uh a point there which is that we were actually really right about a whole bunch of stuff but we weren't confident enough to do it in Fair. the beginning um and so um there is a certain douchiness to saying yeah our biggest mistakes were not re- trusting in our own brilliance and insight right, it's <laughs> like the job interview question you know <laughs> what's your biggest flaw i'm i'm too insistent that i i'd be perfect <laughs> all right so let's segue this might get us to something that resembles some punditry but it's a it's it's a conversation that we haven't had in a little while but has come up many times internally when we talk about sort of our vision of things are we a conservative is the dispatch a conservative media outlet um that does you know reporting and honest reporting and analysis or are we um a honest reporting and analysis outlet that's run by conservatives right i mean and this is partly a philosophical question it's partly a branding question yeah. You know, um, you know, one of the hassles we had with podcasts and and the like is you have to say, oh, it's a conservative podcast, right? And do you lean into the the, the label conservative, particularly when the word conservative is meaning different things to people yeah. these days? And there are there are smart, well intentioned, decent, honest people on both sides of this question. And sometimes you and I go to both sides of this question. Yeah. But how, how do you see it right now? Well, it's a great question. Uh, so, so I, I'm I'm uh, teaching a seminar at the University of Chicago uh, this quarter, 
um, in the Institute of Politics there. And as part of that program, I do office hours. And um, my office hours, they're two hours, two hours on, usually on Thursday, two hours on Friday morning. And my, my Friday office hours, I had a student come in named Thomas, who's a double major in philosophy and econ. Brilliant, brilliant student. It's very obvious. And he, he was asking this exact question. And it was supposed to be a 20-minute discussion. Then I had to get in, the, in a, uh, an Uber and get to the airport to get back for homecoming stuff and family stuff back here. And uh, he and I ended up talking for 55 minutes because <laughs> I was so taken by – I'm fascinated by the question. I'm fascinated by the sort of philosophical um, assumptions and, and questions that, uh, that, that lie behind it. Um, so I, I would say we are, we're a, a news outlet, a media company that does reporting and writing, you know, as we say, you know, in our, in our materials informed by conservative principles, certainly there are things that we publish and things that we say on podcasts that are making a case on behalf of conservatism or on behalf of classical liberalism, on behalf of the processes that attend classical liberalism or the founding. Um, but I would say we don't let our assumptions uh, or those, those sort of long-held beliefs or, those, or our assumptions, our day-to-day assumptions, distort how we think and write, if that makes sense. So... If reality, I mean, this is, this is, uh, I'll use this example and people will either get it or, or, or not get it at all. But in the 1990s, I had a good friend who's a roommate of mine who loved uh, Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Mm-hmm. And he loved it because it was a brutal critique of markets and how markets work, particularly in media. And I hated it for exactly those same reasons. And we would drink beer and argue about this until the wee hours of the morning, like endlessly. This, like every, it was, you, everybody has one of these, or probably a lot of people have one of these. You have a friend, you, you get into arguments, and the argument always ends up arg- uh, about one thing. Mm-hmm. Well, this was our thing, was, was this Postman book. And I recently read or actually listened to it again, and I'm struck by how, how much of the book is accurate. And how in many ways he was prophetic. His critique of, of markets in this context uh, was prophetic. And if we're talking, if we're writing about these things, we're reporting about them or I'm talking about them on a podcast, I'm not going to set aside the postman critique or the specific arguments that he makes because I'm a believer in markets. You have right. to then grapple with those things. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've seen so many people do uh, in this media moment is provide what you always like to call fan service. So mm-hmm. you're just telling people what they want to hear because you know that if you're telling them what they want to hear, they're more inclined to come back to your website. If you get more people coming to your website, you can monetize that volume. If you monetize that volume, you can make a buck. Um, we don't do that. I don't, as long as I'm involved, we're never going to do that. That's not what we exist to do. And I think we approach some of these questions with an inquisitive mind rather than uh, an assertive posture. So, and we talk about this with our, with our staff, with our reporters, approach subjects because you're curious about them 
ask as many questions as you can from as many different perspectives as you can, and then help people figure out how to think about these things. It's not important. There's a very good, there's another good book about journalism, journalism philosophy written by James Stewart called Follow the Story. And we give it to pretty much everybody who who signs up. And that's the main insight of the book is approach journalistic topics as, as you would something that you're really curious about. And it's not important that you write a piece, um, particularly the reported stuff that we do with a determination to provide a definitive answer. Like that's not the goal necessarily of journalism. It's great if you could do it. When you can do it, do it. You know, in some of our explanatory pieces, if the if the basic starting question is, you know, what is this? What are secondary sanctions? Well, we can then write an eight hundred word piece and say secondary sanctions are this, and this is how they work. And there's a pretty there's a pretty obvious question and answer paradigm that's set up there. But in a lot of this stuff, it's gray, and you don't know, and it's not clear what's happening. And th- the service that we can provide is take the, this incredibly sharp, motivated, curious group of reporters, writers, and editors that we've assembled and set them on that and say, figure it out, help us think through this. And you can kind of, you can kind of do it aloud. You know, if you don't have to come to the end of a piece and say, this is exactly the way that we should think about subject X. Now we have people who do that very well too. We have people who make arguments based on their research, based on their understanding, their knowledge of history, their, their reporting, what have you. And make convincing arguments, but our, our approach sort of from the beginning has always been to, to, to question our own assumptions and, and press where we can press. Um, that's a long answer. I don't even remember what question I was answering there, but you got me wound up. I don't usually do that a, in context other than staff meetings. Are we a conservative outlet that does? Um, oh yeah, or are, that does journalism, or are we a journalistic outlet that does conservatism? And I agree. It's so in the spirit of my answer. In the spirit of my answer, I'm not going to give you an answer, but I hope you enjoyed my tour, my journey through <laughs> our thinking about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, this actually does. Now that, you know, because I'm still thinking about what our biggest mistakes were, I think that maybe one of the, like, Lord, everyone, you know, I hope everyone knows, you know, I, I still have nothing but fondness and admiration for, you know, my friends at, at National Review and all of that. And, but one of the, one of the roles that National Review has always tried to play is, as a kind of policeman of the right. And, um, I think there's a lot of room left for us to do that stuff. And it might've, in retrospect, it might've made sense for us to hire someone like Lachlan Marquet, you know, who does this at Axios where he just, he follows the money all over the place because there's just such an enormous amount of grift and BS on the right these days. And I, you know, and people, you know, uh, people with a, a less than uh, firm grasp on my motives or my character think that like I'm obsessed with like, you know, beating up on Republicans or on the right. And that's not the point is like, I want the right to be better and, you know, and not bilk a bunch of people. Um, and, um, um, and there's just in the whole super PAC world and, you know, and the, and forget just the Trump world. Um, there are an enormous number of outlets that are taking advantage of conservative people and also sort of filling conservative people with really messed up ideas about conservatism. And, yeah. and so I think that beat is one that we should lean into a little bit more. 
Yeah. Part of the, you know, and this raises another sort of problem that we've had is like when we, when we started this thing, you know, we, we, we differentiated ourselves from other, you know, there, there are people out there who are anti-Trump, never Trump and all that kind of stuff. And I think our credentials on our problems with Trump are pretty solid. Um, but we always told people and, um, you know, and our mutual friend, Bill Crystal kind of owned this and made fun of us about it a little bit. Um, we took the position that, you know, we wanted to be a post Trump outlet. Like we had a longer time horizon than simply getting into the trenches and doing sort of never Trump stuff or, um, um, not that I necessarily disagree with everything that comes out of the sort of hardcore sort of bulwarky world and, and others like that. There's a lot of stuff there that I, that I agree with. And there's other stuff that I prudentially disagree with. And, you know, people have heard me rant about all that kind of stuff. But one of the challenges that we've had <laughs> is that uh, you can only really be a post-Trump publication when we're in a post-Trump world <laughs> and the friggin' guy won't go away. And, um, and he's still sort of, he's like this giant magnet next to the compass. And so people look at what we're doing and they contextualize it purely. Oh, there oh, there's never Trumpers. Yeah. And there'll be days where we don't have anything on the site about anything having to do with Trump. Yeah. But there's just a lot of ill will because there's so many people locked into, you know, either have, not wanting to hear anything bad about Trump or only wanting to hear bad stuff about Trump. And that's, that's, that's not the course that we want to follow. Yeah. And I can't remember if I've, if I've mentioned this here before, if we've ever talked about it publicly before, but I mean, when we, when we made these pitches, when we made these investor pitches, you know, we, we took this PowerPoint around or we did some, some phone zoom calls, spent a week and a half in New York, um, talking to people it generally took us 15, 20 minutes to work our way through the pitch. It was pretty casual. Um, but in almost every single version of the pitch, we didn't mention Trump. Right. And remember, this is, you know, 2019, spring of 2019. So it was, you know, in the Trump, in the middle of the Trump presidency, we didn't mention Trump. We talked about what we want to do with the institution, how we approached this, what we thought about journalism. And now, inevitably, almost every time the first question we got was about Trump. Right. And, and you would give some version of that answer. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a challenge. You know, the way that I often talk about it is, you know, there are a lot of places, um, and I would, I would include the bulwark in this to a certain extent, where they, that's the focus. You know, Trump is the focus. And we've said this before, our friend Charlie Sykes uh, objected to it. But I think they're, they're clearly more focused on Trump than we are. And they would say, you know, if they don't object to it, they would say, well, that's that's because we have to be. Look at him. Look at what he's done. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to that argument in, in many respects. The, I'd say the other big distinction is... And just, to, just to put a little context on I mean, like, it is a weird argument, and I hear it from many people, that um, it's outrageous to say, you know, other people are obsessed with Trump and also that their criticism of us is that we're not obsessed enough of Trump. I mean, there's a, there's a weird tension there. Um, and got to sort of pick a lane either, you know, like it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a funny thing, you know, if you, and it's hard to explain to some of the people in the comments section, how, you know, 
we probably get as much grief in any given week for being insufficiently hard on Trump <laughs> or um, certainly G-File readers. I get people, why are you writing about Biden? You know, you should be writing about Trump. Oh, I was like, oh I've written like 800 columns about Trump, <laughs> you know, and this guy's the president. At some point, you just have to tune all of it out. Um, not because it's all necessarily bad faith, but because you kind of have to just sort of like say, you're never going to please everybody. And yes. the, the, the desire to please it, to please your biggest fans is corrupting. And it, you know, audience capture is a real problem um, with lots of institutions. And it's one that we were sort of founded to try to avoid. I mean, some of it is just totally natural where, you know, like we think the median dispatch reader is this incredibly civic-minded, educated, smart, quality-obsessed kind of person. So, of course, we want to get praise from those kinds of people. But you can delude yourself about this kind of thing sometimes, which is one of the reasons why I like the fights in the comments section, because it is amazing how we have such a diversity of readers right. that people will read the same piece, diamet even though they're all sort of like invested in our vision, diametrically opposed positions and have diametrically opposed, you know, reactions to it. And it should be noted that most of the, most of those fights don't even probably rise to the level of fights, right? They're actual yeah. real disagreements. And it's not uncommon to see people in, in our comments on the, on a G file or on, uh, you know, the French press or the morning dispatch where people say, Oh, you know, thanks for presenting that new information. You've changed my mind. It's like, yeah. this is sort of, sort of, uh, unique we think it's a, a unique place i mean look i i'm i we're not we will write what we want to write we'll cover what we want to cover for purely editorial reasons um i i think i'm comfortable with the decisions that we've made i think we've got a good balance of of politics and non-politics i think we've got a good balance of foreign policy and national security with domestic politics and policy i think we've got a good balance of, of Trump stuff versus non-Trump stuff. But the, you know, the, I think people who read the morning dispatch on a daily basis will, will have taken note that the morning dispatch does not do a lot of so-and-so said thus and such about Donald Trump or Donald Trump pointed this finger at somebody or somebody's unhappy with him or somebody it's, just, it's not, not very interested in that um, as, as a, publication. Uh, Declan Garvey and Esther Eaton do a great job with that. And, and they don't focus on that. When we talk about the things that we would like them to focus on there and that we try to, to focus on sort of broader editorial, um, as we pursue our broader editorial objectives, I like to say, you know, is this something that people are going to be talking about in six days? Is it something that people are going to be talking about in six weeks? Is it something that people are going to be talking about in six months? And if the answer to, to each of those questions is an obvious no, eh, it's something that we could choose not to cover. It doesn't mean we always will, but it's something that we could choose not to cover. We'd rather spend our time covering the, the kinds of things that are likely to, to, to matter in, in, uh, you know, down the road. And just so much of the nonsense um, that Trump participates in or generates is just, it just sort of falls away. And that's not to minimize who he is or his effect on our politics. I mean, I think in a very unfortunate way, we're seeing his effect on our politics play out in these midterm elections. If you look at the, the, the 
kinds of election deniers who won primaries, the kinds of arguments that they made that are just simply, in many cases, demonstrably and provably false, um, but are nonetheless resonant with uh, Republican-based voters. That is one of Trump's uh, most significant significant legacies, and it's it's an abomination. It's horrible for the country. We do cover that. You know, it's not like we sort of set that aside. We do cover that. I just don't need to read a hundred pieces, one after another, after another of the latest episode of something crazy said on true social. I don't really give a shit what Trump says on true social. I mean, sometimes it's worth grabbing something and highlighting it. Um, just to remind people, like when he said, you know, I need to, we need this, we need to have a new election or I need to be reinstalled as president or whatever he said about a, a month ago. Like that's crazy. And I think it was worth grabbing that and saying to people like, just a reminder, this is totally nuts. Like this is, this is, shouldn't be part of our, our discussion. All right. So on the very little time we have left, um, let's sort of say, sort of broadly on this. We haven't talked about this in a little while. Where do you come down? Not on whether Trump will run again and all that kind of stuff. I know you and Sarah have this bet and that's, that's truly rank punditry, but the Trumpism of, you know, like if you look at um, the right generally now, it feels like, you know, some parts nature's healing a little bit, but in most parts, um, you know, you have, you know, Ben Sass left politics because he had enough with the garbage. Um, you look at the people who are rallying around and amplifying uh, the artist formerly known as Kanye West's, um, you know, uh, mentally troubled diatribes about the Zionist Jews does what is your level of optimism about whether or not, you know, what we're trying to do remains, it's not a total outlier now. Again, there's some good people on the right doing good stuff, you know, but uh, is this what the future of what conservative media or right-wing media, I'd rather call it that, um, looks like for the foreseeable future? This being the general landscape as we observe it now, or this being what we're doing the sort of the, the 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 fan service feedback loop you know i mean one of the problems you have is you know we and we know this from our conversations with various you know closet normal senators and congressmen that we've had it's very difficult for adults to police anything right um and so because if you can go on tucker or hannity or one of these kinds of things you can go over the heads of the main of the rest of the media, you can go over the heads of the the formal Republican Party. Um, there's this whole infrastructure out there that is addicted to monetizing as much outrage, regardless of whether it has the truth to it or not. And it does not feel like you know that is going away no. anytime soon. And is that just is 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 that going to be the new normal? I mean, do, do Republican politicians have to sort of play that game the way, say, Ron DeSantis plays it? I think pretty well, but, you know, they still, he's still playing a sort of fan service for the very online right kind of game. Is that, is that what we're looking at for the, you know, the rest of our professional lives? I think there are reasons to be really worried. I mean, and, you know, uh, this is part of the reason we, we, we did what we did. And you always said, we like, we want to zig where others are zagging. 
there's a lot of zagging going on right now. Um, and, you know, j- just as you look at Congress and the changes in Congress over the past, say, 30 years, um, really since the rise of cable TV, and Congress has become a largely performative institution in ways that we've talked about um, ad nauseum here and on the Dispatch podcast and sort of everywhere else we, we can. It would be crazy to think that the that the um, the distribution mechanisms that have incentivized that would lead the change away from that, right? So, I mean, I, it's hard to imagine that you know the cable makes this better. That that having more of that available, you know, it's, it went from. Um, you know, Fox and what I like to think of as Fox's more responsible days back in the in the early aughts or the late nineties, um, to now you know Fox and Newsmax and OAN and all of these streaming uh, outlets that are even you know to the to the crazy side of of OAN. Um, as long as there's money to be made there people are going to try to make money there and there's money to be made there. You know, you can get a, 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 even if it's a small audience, but a devoted audience, you can monetize the heck out of that. Um, so I, th- there are reasons to be discouraged as to what it's doing to, to our politics. It's a fascinating piece, a couple of fascinating pieces I'll, I'll mention. One was um, by David Friedlander, wrote a piece for the, for New York Magazine, in which he talked about the changing approach that Republicans are taking to the media and made this argument backed up by data and numerous examples that Republicans have more or less, in in many cases, just opted not to cooperate with the media. So if 15, 20 years ago, what you wanted to do if you were a Republican running for president was score a a sit-down interview with ABC News uh, for broadcast on Good Morning America or you know, ABC World News Tonight, um, or you wanted to get something on 60 Minutes, or you wanted to have a big sit down on on Meet the Press. Republicans are often as not are just choosing not to engage that way because they can go to their own this constellation, this constellation of of right wing outlets or in some cases you know they they're creating it's not just that they're circumventing the, the gatekeepers of old it's that in some cases they're creating their own means of right. distributing the content i mean ted cruz has this podcast called the verdict it's totally unfiltered i mean he's got a co-host but he can say whatever the heck he wants to say and there are a lot of people who are listening to it matt gates has a a podcast that he uses i mean you're seeing this kind of of direct communication take precedence over over prioritizing sitting down with with journalists we're almost certainly going to see more of that not less of it um you know you can make a good argument that in in a theoretical sense remove those gatekeepers i mean i've had 30 years of criticizing the gatekeepers as being sometimes a distorting mechanism um i would argue that that is there's a reason the mainstream media have the the trouble that they're in, why trust in media among Republicans is at 9% in this Gallup poll, uh, I think just a couple of months ago. There are reasons and explanations for a lot of this. I just think it doesn't bode well for, you know, the way that we solve problems, the way that we discuss these things um, across party lines, across ideological lines, if everybody just 
just sort of, you know, recamps back to their own, their own viewpoint. I, the silo stuff has been well explored. I won't go in detail here, but there are reasons to be discouraged. So like my favorite example of this phenomenon about the, about politicians, the distorting effect of politicians being able to go around the media. Um, and I agree with you. Look, I, mean, I spent 30 years bitching and moaning about left-wing media bias. And I think it was a real thing. And, and they bought a lot of the problems that they have, but, um, you know, I've come to the position that C-SPAN cameras, putting cameras in Congress was a mistake, particularly for hearings. And um, for precisely the reasons that, I haven't read the Friedlander piece, but for, for precisely the reasons you were ascribing to him. Um, and my, it was an epiphany for me was, I can't remember what he was there to testify about, but uh, William Barr was brought before the Senate, must have been the Judiciary Committee, Amidst one of those crazy moments about, I don't know if it was the Steele dossier or, or, or what, but it was like one of those crazy moments where everybody was making accusations about what the Trump administration was doing, what the Justice Department, what the Justice Department was doing. And here comes Barr, presumably to answer the questions about what's at, what in fact is going on, at least according to him. And not a single senator asked a meaningful question. Yeah. Yeah. They used all of their time to do these stem winder things and then ask essentially a yes or no. And, and if they ended with a question at all, it was like a yes or no question. Right. And it, and the thing is, whether you were a Republican or a Democrat, what you actually wanted to hear was Barr's answer to some of this stuff. And instead, and it, it was it, like the light went off in my head. It, what I realized was that, and they were all asking like the same, they were all making the a same version statements. of the same question. And yeah. it was because they all need the YouTube video or some other version of that to send to their lists. And like, here I am standing here for the Democrats. It's here I am standing up to, to William Barr and blah, blah, blah. And for Ted Cruz, it's here I am standing up to the woke mob trying to take down William Barr. And at some point Barr was like, maybe I can answer the question, you know? Right. <laughs> and, right. And this is the distorting effect you have when you have a, a media ecosystem that is more interested in either piping the preferred soundbite directly into the veins of their own sort of base or um, getting the sound bites that are going to go viral on Twitter and Facebook and stuff, but yep. not actually illuminating Anything. And I was just like, when the hell, like if I were in the old world, right, in the before times, at some point, a Republican friend of the administration would have said, Mr. Attorney General, would you like to respond to the Democrats' accusations? Right. right. Use my time to do that. No one did that because they didn't want that. They didn't care about that. They didn't care about fact finding. They didn't care about even defending the administration beyond sort of hyperbolic rhetoric. It was just sort of like, Get me my, my sweet, sweet YouTube clips. And that was it. And that's why I think you should just have cameras go out of there. You can put print reporters in there. Um, you can even still videotape it, but don't release it for a while, you know. But the transparency thing has become a big problem, I think. Well, and we've, yeah, and, and, and we know, um, you know, certain, certain elected officials want to go on certain shows, on certain channels, because they have an expectation of how much money they're going to be able to generate based on an appearance on, you know, this show in the C block. 
I can, if I get, if I'm on the C block on this show, I can cut that, send it to my people, tweet it out, make a splash, you know, say something that's attention grabbing. And I, it's going to enable me to raise all this small dollar money. I mean, that's, it's a strategy. That's what politicians are actually doing. All right. So this is getting, you know, too depressing. And I wasn't intending for this to be the, um, why dispatch members should start cutting themselves. Um, um, but it could be the why dispatch members should go and recruit other dispatch members to join them in this. That is true. Join the remnant for it is a happy place to be. Um, we should, um, we should talk very quickly if we can about exciting things coming down the pike. Um, things that we want to do. I'll, I'll give one example. You know, one of the reasons why we want, I say this all the time on, on the remnant, you know, one of the reasons why remnant listeners should become members um, is because it lets us do all of the things that we want to do faster. And, and that's not, selling the company. Um, but it is, um, um, you know, one of the things we wanted to do from the beginning is like long form podcast stuff, you know, stuff like serial. Um, you know, one of the examples we often used in the beginning was, you know, like David French, he's got serious sympathies for law enforcement, but he's also got serious sympathies for civil rights and for, um, you know, sort of racial justice stuff. And, Put them in a ride-along in a cop car, put them in a, you know, county jail, put them in a courtroom, follow a case from beginning to end. Um, I think he'd be great about that. I want to do, like, long-form podcasts about, like, the history of the New Deal, or even, dare I say it, the Wilson administration. Um, there are all sorts of things that, you know, that's time-intensive and it's labor-intensive, but it's one of the things that we, we really want to do that we think we can do in a way that literally nobody else is doing, um, at least not doing well. Um, there are a lot of great long form podcasts. Don't get me wrong, but like they're not right of center. They don't, they don't tackle issues the way we would. Um, and, uh, I think there's just an enormous amount of low hanging fruit for us on that front. Um, the members, you know, perks for like commenting is going to get awesome. Just going to take a little while. Um, yeah. and, uh, and events, you know, we had to cancel the, the Naples event, but we want to do a lot more meetups and, and, and all that. So anyway, anything I'm leaving out there? No, I mean, the, the, the Naples event was canceled for us. The, the, the hotel, we didn't no longer have the facilities that we needed uh, to accommodate a, a group of our size and, you know, sent us a note and said, we're very sorry that this is, um, this is the reality, but this is the reality. We couldn't, we, we had already had to split um, our, our, uh, event that we were planning to hold in Naples the weekend after the election between two different facilities owned by the same hotel, and they lost use of one of the two facilities, and we just were going to have because of the potentially, hurricane. potentially too many people. Yeah, because of the the hurricane. Um, so that was disappointing. I will say we did an event, um, you know, sort of a glorified happy hour meetup in um, Nashville uh, with uh, David French and Ryan Brown, who runs our our community efforts. And it, it was, uh, it was cool in a way I didn't anticipate it being cool. It was, it's, you know, there's it nothing more rewarding, honestly, than getting emails from people who are saying like, I'm so glad you guys exist. Thank you so much for doing this, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's even, it's even cooler to hear that in person if you're drinking a really cold beer um, and, and, you know, 
people talk you through what they like, what they don't like, or, you know, the thing that we, we got a lot was I'm, I'm so politically homeless and I don't know that many people who are like that. And so here we had this gathering of 150 plus people who were kind of all in the same situation. And you, you found people who were just meeting each other. We're like, Oh my God. Yes, you get it. Yeah. You get it. And that was, that was really cool. We're doing another one. Um, I hadn't planned on making an announcement, but we might as well. We're doing one in Chicago on November 3rd, um, which is a Thursday night. Details to follow. Please look at the morning dispatch and elsewhere. We'll send something out to all members of the dispatch. These are for dispatch members only. Um, but that's, uh, that's locked in. I think that's going to be fun. We should say that if you, if you come and you're not a dispatch member and you sign up there to become a dispatch member, you can come. <laughs> There's no reason not to like make these into sort of marketing duels if people want to do that. Well, and one of the things, I mean, you know, we decided this is again, one of these things where we just decided like, Hey, we don't have this all figured out, but let's just plunge ahead of what could go wrong if we have wings and beers for two hours with people in Nashville. And it was great. And you know, the whole point was let's learn from, from what we did. One of the things we probably didn't emphasize enough in Nashville is we would love to, to, to use this obviously to, to expand our reach, to, to reach more people. So, you know, we said, Hey, feel free to bring a guest. I think, you know, for the Chicago one and for, for future ones, we'll say you're strongly encouraged to bring guests. We'd love if there are people that, you know, who, you know, would be interested in what we're doing, bring along, give it a shot. You know, if, if nothing else, they can have a couple of free beers on the dispatch. But, um, but we're, we're, we want to step those up um, and make them you know, have, develop a pretty regular cadence where we're, we're zipping out to, to parts of the country um, that we'd like to see, that, that might like to see us. Um, so I'd say those two things. I'm really jazzed about the, the, uh, what we have sort of for our online community functions. This won't be for everybody. Like some people, you know, just want to get our newsletters and listen to our podcasts and don't really care to hang out online with, with other dispatch people. Um, some people really do. And for some people, it's a really important part of, of why they joined us. And, uh, you know, as I said earlier with, with Substack, there was some, there were some additional things that we wanted that we were unlikely to be able to get. Um, what we've done sort of in the interim, as we moved off of Substack and, and onto our own tech stack, was just create a placeholder for what we want to come. So we're working on um, some pretty cool things that, you know, we hope will allow people to to hang out um, with us and with our people even more. So, you know, conceivably David French could, if, he, if he's got 20 minutes at some point, he could send a note out to people who read the French press and say, hey, I've got 20 minutes to to jump online and chat with people. Um, do the same thing with, with all of our writers, all of our newsletter folks, our contributors, um, just find more ways to, to engage and interact, which, as I said, sort of from the beginning has been a, a big part of what we wanted to do. We're looking at that. We're working on uh, a number of different possibilities in that. And I'm, I'm pretty jazzed about it. Yeah. And then there's all sorts of like just coverage that we want to expand and we don't need to get into all of that, but we're Stay always tuned interested for dispatch politics. Yeah, we got to talk about that, um, <laughs> but maybe not right now. Um, um, all right. Well, if there, if you can't think of anything else to uh, to to talk about, um, well, I can. There's one thing I didn't mention. You you mentioned earlier our desire to do long form podcasts and ended it by saying low hanging fruit. 
now is probably as good a time uh, as any to, to mention the coming uh, podcast I have on Spanish wine, where I'm going to be visiting 10 different wineries in Ribera del Duero, the center of Spain, um, taking people along for what I hope will be a, a tremendous journey um, into grapes and uh, wine greatness. I don't know if you were sick. Are you being serious? <laughs> of course, I'm being serious. Didn't I tell this is I gotta I gotta be there from March until May. Gotta? Yeah. I mean, how can I do it if it's a long form thing? I've got to be over there for that whole time. So, uh-huh. looking forward to that. All right. Be- so this is this is not true because this has not come up in any of our budgeting <laughs> conversations. Um, but you've wanted to do it for so long that I just kind of almost thought you were serious. Then. It is the new Taliban yeah. piece to to bring things full circle. Um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, we talked a lot about Substack on here and I just, I want to remind folks, you know, like if you think Kevin Williamson, who, you know, recent, attra- you know, addition, we're very excited to have him. If he's someone that you would pay for a standalone Substack, you know, newsletter, if you think that, uh, Nick Cattagio or AKA Alapundit is someone that you would do it or our, our, our own, you know, Sarah Isger or David French, um, or the morning dispatch. I think all of these things would be worth a Substack, a newsletter subscription on their own. You get all of them plus a bunch more um, when you uh, sign up to become a member of the Dispatch. It's basically getting a bunch of things that are worth a hundred bucks a year or more, um, you know, in one bundle um, for one package price. And we think that's a, a real value add. So um, thank you to everybody who put up with this because it was um, long and I, we're so in the bubble of this stuff that we can never really tell whether other people find any of it interesting at all. Um, but the market re- signals are, I mean, when we don't talk about it, I mean, we, we usually get questions like this on Dispatch Live. Um, yeah, and we yeah. have people asking these kinds of questions a lot. So, and as I said earlier, I mean, the, the, the numbers, not that we're obsessed with numbers, but the numbers a couple of times we've done this have been pretty good. Maybe, yeah, maybe this yeah. one was a snoozer. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure there were people who were sitting there listening to this screaming, why didn't you talk about leaving Fox News? And why do you talk about... Um, and um, I get it, but, you know, you can only talk about so many We can do it again. We can certainly do it again. I just do feel like, um, I don't know if you ever really were a Seinfeld fan, but like... I was. Okay, so do you remember for a while there, there was at least one episode where Elaine becomes uh, the president of the Jay Peterman catalog? Yes. And she all she does is talk to other people about her stock options as if they're the most fascinating thing in the yeah. world and no one else cares. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> I sometimes feel like that when, you know, people say, hey, how's the dispatch going? And then I actually, it's sort of like, it's like when, you know, when someone asks you, how are you doing? Right. And then you actually give a full-throated real right, answer. Right, and they're like, right, dude, right. I was just saying <laughs> I was hi. just being you know? <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, there it is. So, uh, um, Steve, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Steve has left the studio. Um, he's going off to uh, uh, grill burgers and drink Spanish wine, or maybe NyQuil or both. I can't remember what he said. Uh, he's been struggling with um, some post-COVID action. And again, I really do apologize. I mean, like, again, the people who really were not into this episode probably aren't uh, listening anymore. And I, I totally understand and take no offense. Um, you don't have to send me an email about how much you hated it, but, uh, we get people ask us, you know, when is the 
catch up thing, blah, 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 blah. And how are things going at the dispatch? And so we thought we would do it. I am going to uh, Grove City uh, College tomorrow to do a talk about conservatism. And, um, and then Wednesday, uh, I think I'm having Yuval Levin back on The Remnant. So send me your, uh, your questions. And I won't do any more plugs for the dispatch because I think we've, we've checked that box. And uh, um, that's about it. I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Yeah. <laughs>